In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome back to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. After a summer hiatus, Brexit Republic is back to assess all the latest developments in Brussels, London, Dublin and today in Belfast. Well, it's Groundhog Day again. The Northern Ireland Protocol is back in the news despite the best efforts of the EU to keep things calm and orderly, especially after a relatively quiet marching season over the summer. This week, the DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson promised to pull down the Stormont Assembly within weeks, unless there are big changes to the protocol. While last weekend, David Frost raised the stakes further by saying flexibilities within the protocol were no longer enough. We'll hear from Professor John Tong of Liverpool University about Geoffrey Donaldson's electoral gamble and we'll hear from Mara Shevchevic during his busy round of meeting stakeholders, businesses and politicians in Northern Ireland and why dropping the European Court of Justice from the protocol, a fresh demand from London, would exclude Northern Ireland from access to the EU single market. Well, in case Mara Shevchevic was in any doubt as to what the DUP wanted when he came to Northern Ireland, the DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson laid it out in some pretty stark terms, threatening some pretty stark consequences as well. I believe now is the time to act. Therefore, as the protocol issues remain unresolved, the DUP will immediately withdraw from the structures of Strand 2 of the Belfast Agreement relating to North-South arrangements, while we will ensure that important health-related matters continue to be addressed on a cooperative basis. I do so in the full knowledge of the knock-on effects that such a move may have and the instability that may result. Not something I want to happen, but we simply cannot go on like this. The threat to the political institutions is not from our withdrawal from Strand 2. The threat to the political institutions is from the protocol itself. The second step I intend to take relates to the operation of the protocol. Bad as it has been, to date the full impact of the protocol has not yet been felt. This is partly because of the grace periods and partly because the checks that are required by the protocol are not being implemented in full. We have not yet experienced the full impact of the protocol, but merely what some have described as protocol light but consider even the damage this has done to our economy and political stability. I do not pretend that there are easy answers when the law requires one thing and politics demands something else. Though some unionists would like to, we cannot wish away the fact that the Northern Ireland Protocol is part of domestic law. However, I believe that we can use our position in ministerial office to the benefit of the people of Northern Ireland. No one can be in any doubt that the ending of the grace periods would have a devastating impact on Northern Ireland. That is not something I am prepared to countenance or be a party to. 
Nor should any elected politician in Northern Ireland who cares for our people consider that the ending of the grace periods is something to be welcomed. Therefore, regardless of what the position is of the UK government or that of the EU, in the future, DUP ministers will seek to block any additional checks at the ports in Northern Ireland that arise from the Northern Ireland Protocol. In the final analysis, those who are democratically elected by the people of Northern Ireland lack the power to prevent such checks. If that is the case, if our ministers cannot in the end prevent these checks taking place, and if the protocol issues remain, then I have to be clear, the position in office of DUP ministers would become untenable. Well, that was Geoffrey Donaldson. Let's hear from Mara Shevchevic, who was giving a speech in Queen's University in Belfast today, talking about how the protocol is not up for renegotiation. I also need to be honest. Why we will continue looking for the solutions to minimise the effects of Brexit on your everyday lives, we will never be able to remove them entirely. Such are the consequences of Brexit and of the choices of the UK government. So what should happen next? As you know, the UK published the command paper on the 21st of July. And we have been engaging constructively with our UK partners on what can be done to limit the impact of protocol on everyday life in Northern Ireland while maintaining access to the EU's single market. The EU and the UK must continue these discussions in order to reach an understanding. I believe that our focus should be on those issues that matter the most to the people of Northern Ireland, and not on requests such as removing the role of the European Court of Justice. Doing this would effectively mean cutting Northern Ireland off the EU single market and related opportunities. Instead, let's see what can be done to further ease the supply of goods. And let's see how to involve the people of Northern Ireland in our discussions on the implementation of the protocol. A renegotiation of the protocol, as the UK government is suggesting, would mean instability, uncertainty and unpredictability in Northern Ireland. Bear in mind, it has taken us five years to get to this point. Let me enter on the personal note. I will believe in Northern Ireland encourage that we can find practical solutions to help ensure that the protocol works well on the ground, translating into jobs and growth. So Tony Marischevcevic in Dublin briefly Wednesday night and then up to Northern Ireland on Thursday and Friday. What prompted this particular visit? Well, uh, speaking to officials in Brussels, Colm, there, there are three reasons for this visit. One was to try and meet as many people as possible, and you can see it was a very uh, packed uh, schedule. He was meeting businesses in the Flurry Bridge Enterprise Centre near Newry. He was meeting the Chamber of Commerce in Newry, uh, stakeholders, civil society. Then he met the... Uh, speaker of uh, the Stormont Assembly, Alex Maskey. He was going to meet political leaders. He was going to meet the Shankill Women's. Uh, then he was going to give a speech in Queen's University and then uh, hold up a news conference. Then uh, I think he was going to meet the Northern Ireland Ministerial Council. So, uh, as always with these trips to Northern Ireland, you've got to make sure that you meet all sides uh, and don't then end up running the risk of getting criticised for not meeting one side or the other. Um, but I think a big 
push now from the European Commission after the summer is to try and build this bridge between the EU and civil society, businesses, politicians in Northern Ireland to build up some trust and say, look, we understand the protocol is very difficult. Tell us what the difficulties are, give us the detail, and we will try and find practical and pragmatic uh, solutions that will make the protocol work and will not be uh, so onerous or so uh, despised by people. And that, I think, is a deliberate strategy because the feeling now in Brussels and in European capitals is that the UK is elevating the issue of sovereignty, making fresh demands of the EU, such as dropping the European Court of Justice from any role in uh, overseeing the protocol, which would be an absolute non-starter that would, I think, completely undermine the protocol or require a complete renegotiation. Um, and, and to build this bridge with ordinary people on the ground who they believe are not particularly concerned about those kinds of issues. They just want the protocol to be manageable, that it will not be so disruptive. Um, but all, And also a third reason why Mara Shevchevich was in Northern Ireland was also to manage expectations, especially among the unionist community, following that speech last weekend, which Sean's going to talk about by David Frost, uh, and the command paper, which was published by the UK during the summer, um, that the Northern Ireland Protocol was somehow going to be torn up or renegotiated or have substantial changes to it. Um, that message would have gone out by Mara Shevchevich that that's not going to happen. The name of the game for the EU at this point is Let's see what we can do. Uh, let's find practical, pragmatic solutions. And Mara Shevchevich told EU ambassadors on Wednesday before he went to Dublin that he would bring forward proposals at the end of September or early October, kind of timed to avoid a clash with uh, conference party conference season in the UK. And then there would be a period of negotiation with the UK on these areas, four areas he talked about altogether, medicines, uh, agri-food, uh, the role of the institutions in Northern Ireland, what role they might play in implementing or overseeing the protocol uh, and uh, the customs uh, declarations issue. Uh, and he was telling ambassadors in Brussels that he thought they could get a deal by the end of the year, but by no means certain. Right. He was talking about consul um, consultation with stakeholders in Northern Ireland, but in his consultations and in meeting with business people, the main point of appeal seems to be, look, if we can find pragmatic solutions, if we can find flexibilities, if we can just try and work the protocol, then you'll see the stability that will yield the investment dividends that are waiting to come in from the US and Canada. That was very much his takeaway from meeting the business communities, and he was more than happy to emphasise that point because that's something the EU has been pushing for quite a while. Yes, ab absolutely. And uh, officials here in Brussels really making a distinction between what they feel people on the ground in Northern Ireland are interested in, what they want to see happening, and what the UK is doing. By contrast, he, th there is a genuine fear now in Brussels that the UK is starting to raise issues of sovereignty, the, the question of the European Court of Justice, the whole governance issue, how the, how the protocol is is managed and governed. The British officials are now saying, look, uh, it's highly unusual in a trade negotiation for one side to be subject to the legal authority of the other side. Um, uh, when they're talking about the European Court of Justice, the EU in turn saying, look, 
the protocol uh, fundamentally means that EU single market rules for goods apply in Northern Ireland. The EU's external regulatory frontier is between Northern Ireland and Great Britain on the Irish Sea. Uh, when it comes to single market rules, the only and ultimate arbiter of those rules is the European Court of Justice. Um, the UK saying, look, in free trade negotiations like the one they've just concluded with the UK, there is a dispute resolution mechanism. You can have arbitration. You can have an independent panel. Why not try something like that for the Northern Ireland Protocol? Uh, but of course, uh, this would be an absolute no-go for, for the European Union. Right. Well, we, we heard from Jeffrey Donaldson today. We obviously heard from Mara Shevchevich as well. But the previous week, Sean, you were listening to a speech by David Frost at the British Irish Association, who was laying out some of his red lines or, I suppose, setting the scene as the British government returns to business and engages again in all of this negotiation around the Northern Ireland Protocol or, or not negotiation, as Mara Shevchevich was, was keen to point out today. Yeah, I mean, a very interesting speech in many ways reminiscent of a lot of the things um, David Frost has been saying to various committees uh, here in Westminster before the summer break uh, and also uh, anybody who's read the uh, command paper, the the government white paper, I guess, um, most of us will be more familiar with calling it, uh, about what they uh, want to do with the protocol that he published at the end of uh, July. He'd be familiar with that kind of stuff, but he made a speech as you say, the British Irish Association, which was, I guess, uh, in deference to his previous job, a distilled version of all of that. Uh, another way of looking at it, that this was the espresso rather than the uh, very long Americano version uh, of what he uh, thinks ought to be done now. And you got quite a, a kick, uh, and a, an, an espresso type of kick uh, from it as a result. It was strong stuff. It was punchy stuff. Um, it left a few people, quite a few people in the hall, uh, reeling um, under the onslaught of it all. But essentially, I think what he's saying there is we want to keep our protocol, even call it the protocol, but it will be pretty much hollowed out from the protocol as we know it. And I've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast and inside this outer shell of a, of a protocol would be inserted something radically different. Uh, to what is there at the moment. Right. And it's the huge scale of, of what uh, he is proposing um, uh, that uh, I think is where the opposition that Tony's been talking about in Brussels will come into because he's talking about three different things, the movement of goods into Northern Ireland, the standards of goods within Northern Ireland and governance arrangements, uh, which is what Tony was talking about there with the European Court of Justice. What Geoffrey Donaldson was saying about going to the going to the electorate in Northern Ireland and collapsing the assembly and stopping the cooperation on north-south bodies, all of that, I suppose, is pointed to as evidence by the British government that the protocol is causing instability. And while there's no love lost at the moment between the Democratic Unionist Party and Boris Johnson's Tory party, this is grist to the mill of the UK government's approach to trying to leverage some negotiating room with Brussels. Oh, it is. And, and indeed, if you um, look at the two speeches uh, in parallel, Geoffrey Donaldson's and uh, Lord Frost's, there's quite a lot of similarity in what they're talking about, uh, even some of the language that's been talked about. Right. So uh, I, I don't know whether it's Lord Frost following Geoffrey Donaldson or more likely Geoffrey Donaldson following 
David Frost and uh, the government line, if you like, about what needs to be done, but each of them uh, reinforcing the other and then getting um, a little bit of help from the outside world in the form of Archie Norman, mm. the uh, chairman of Marks and Spencers, who you may recall uh, had spoken earlier in the summer about uh, the kind of supply chain difficulties that were being caused by the protocol and uh, further ones expected to come. So that you get that sort of a, a nexus there between the DUP, the British government, some uh, of the... Uh, um, pro-Tory, I guess, parts of the business establishment uh, here in the UK, uh, and they are pushing very much for essentially a renegotiation of the protocol. Okay. And uh, in relation specifically to the uh, European Court of Justice and its oversight role of things like merger control, we've had uh, George Peretz QC, who's normally um, fairly critical of the government stance over here uh, about Brexit, but he's saying they do have a, a strong case uh, in ways to uh, looking at limiting the scope of Article 10 of the protocol. Um, uh, this is the reachback, uh, uh, Sean. This the reach is the reachback thing, yeah. Mm. And um, trimming that down because the Trade and Cooperation Agreement had brought in uh, a new set of uh, regulations and the UK has written its own uh, merger control uh, legislation as well, so it's not needed. So, uh, again, areas that they can shift on, they can change things on, and that seems to be very much the approach of the British government now. It wasn't satisfactory what they agreed as far as they're concerned, and they want to change it now. So how much do you change it? Tony, uh, on the issue of language, uh, Sean was making comment on David Frost's choice of language in uh, his speech to the British Irish Association in Oxford. Geoffrey Donaldson, obviously quite robust in what he was saying as well. By contrast... Mara Shevchevich was saying today that maybe the, the rhetoric needed to be dialed down, something that was actually taken as, as quite belligerent uh, by the Democratic Unionist Party, saying their concerns were being dismissed as rhetoric, where they were realistic and heartfelt concerns. But the language by Mara Shevchevich is very calm. What you mentioned there earlier about the halting of the legal action is trying to dial down the temperature as well. I mean, what's the catalyst for this approach? We, we had an awful lot of talk about red lines, Pacta Sunt Servanda and all of that. It's a bit more yeah. softly, softly. What has been the catalyst for this? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, certainly, you know, we, we've talked before about the legal action that the EU took against Britain back in March because the UK unilaterally extended the grace periods uh, around export health certificates uh, for agri-food products coming into Northern Ireland from GB. Uh, then, OK, in June, they they didn't do it unilaterally. They negotiated with the EU, and the EU agreed to extending the, the, the chilled meats grace period. We talked about sausage wars, etc., etc. Um, but the UK's response to the EU's legal action back in March was a 19-page letter, which the EU regarded as a kind of political rant against the protocol and against the EU's implementation of it. It didn't essentially make a legal case for the e for the UK extending these grace periods unilaterally essentially overriding the protocol that was agreed by both sides and the question then was when was the EU going to escalate the legal action and indeed Maros Shevchevich had told member states in June that the EU could end up in the European court sorry the UK could end up in the European Court of Justice as early as this month so there was a big expectation about escalating legal action over the unilateral move by the UK. The question was not if, but when. But then the, the command paper came out. F officials in the capitals and here in Brussels were wondering, OK, do we 
escalate the legal action before the command paper comes out or do we do it afterwards but it was always felt that it would happen then the command paper came out there was a very difficult phone call between Ursula von der Leyen the commission president and Boris Johnson the same day, on the 22nd of July the same day another tricky phone call between Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel but somewhere in that period at the end of July there was a sharp U-turn by the Commission. They told Member States, look, we're not going to escalate the legal action. We're not going to issue what's called a reasoned opinion, which is a prelude to things getting into the European Court of Justice. We're going to pause that the whole, that whole thing and take a much calmer approach. And I think if you, if you ask about Catalyst, I think certainly the role of Angela Merkel and Berlin's general kind of bigger picture approach to Brexit was certainly instrumental. Um, officials I've spoken to have said that. Why, what, what's, the, what, what's the specific, I mean, is, is it anything built on that sort of economic exchange or is it simply a matter of the more conciliatory Merkel approach? It's based on the idea of, of a sense of proportion and also a sense of fatigue, uh, quite frankly. As in uh, this is just taking states. up too much bandwidth. It's taking up too much bandwidth and it's, it's you know, how many years now have we been talking about a small patch of the western seaboard of Europe, Northern Ireland, uh, how much energy and uh, man hours, people hours, women hours has that taken up over the years? And the EU is battling the, the pandemic. It's trying to get to grips with its its role in relation to Afghanistan, with Russia, with China, perhaps a new wave of migration, uh, the recovery fund. And the view from Berlin is, look, we have to not let this dominate the right. EU agenda. Mm. And of course, we have an election coming up in Berlin at the end of this month. Does a new German Chancellor walk straight into a, an EU-UK trade war over Northern Ireland sausages? Uh, or is there a way to try and just de-escalate this? Not that the EU is going to roll over and give the UK what it wants, but to try and see this with a sense of proportion uh, um, right. and, and, and to get the temperature down uh, and I think that was why they, they put now the thing is about the legal actions they haven't abandoned the legal action and they have said they reserve the right to revive it uh, if the UK uh, takes a certain course or, or does not play ball um, but, but certainly I think the feeling is that they they have to get this into some kind of end game once and for all that this issue is done and over with and it doesn't become, uh, as one official said, a forever war uh, to use the Afghanistan uh, coinage. Right, but Sean, on the UK, the on, on the UK side of things, sorry, just this week, but just, just yeah. before you get to that, on, on the UK side, Sean, I mean, a, a change in approach or a change of tone, a moderation by the European Union, at least in what they're saying, could be interpreted in London as a backing down by the EU or, you know, a, a, a U-turn on the whole issue of negotiation and embolden, I suppose, the more hardline approach. Well, that's always a danger in these sort of situations. Uh, you give an inch, they take a mile. And certainly uh, the uh, hardcore Brexiter fringe uh, on the outer edges of the Conservative Party and the uh, outer edges of the media uh, in London uh, certainly take that approach. If there's any any uh, chink in the armour of Brussels, they will be the one trying to ram a lance into it. I suspect the more um, professional, diplomatic uh, side of the uh, British establishment are looking to see can they get a genuine opening uh, with Brussels. And the fact that they didn't push ahead with that uh, legal action and they didn't introduce any new legal action when the British um, 
abandoned the grace periods that were due to expire at the end of this month. They formally abandoned that on Monday, but they had been uh, warming up the Commission uh, and uh, Member State governments a couple of days before that, uh, that they were going to pause that, and there was no end date on it. The uh, Commission have basically noted it and aren't doing anything about it for the moment. Um, but that, again, is creating space. There was a lot of talk about of creating space and time for negotiations to try and get this issue of Northern Ireland protocol sorted and take it as of far off the agenda as it can be taken off the agenda. Um, David Frost, in that speech, saying there's always going to be a need for a specific EU-UK treaty related to Northern Ireland because of its unique uh, situation and circumstances, but let's try and make this uh, one that works properly for everybody who's concerned with it. So, yeah, there is definitely space there, but there isn't so much time there. That's the problem. Right. Jeffrey Donaldson talking about weeks to try and get this one sorted out. Uh, the Irish um, ministers, politicians looking perhaps towards November as a landing point for it. So certainly this autumn is going to be a pretty busy and pretty intense time. And of course, in the midst of all that, we have a Conservative Party conference coming up in the first week in October. Think back to the last one, two years ago, where the DUP held their reception and Boris Johnson came along, gave them warm words of reassurance, and then a fortnight later had his meeting with Leo Varadkar up in the Wirral, uh, from which this version of the protocol emerged. Before we leave the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, Tony, and just to, to close out this part of the podcast on it, you've been speaking to Professor John Tong of Liverpool University. What have you been talking to him about? Yeah, so he's a leading expert on the DUP, and I got his views on Jeffrey Donaldson's threat and the wider threat that unionism in general, or certainly the DUP in particular, feels it's subject to at the moment, and how that uh, could play out in electoral terms for the DUP if he does pull down the uh, Stormont institutions uh, and where the, the things might land, where the chips might fall if he does that for unionism and indeed for Sinn Féin. Uh, John Tong, thanks so much for joining us on Brexit Republic. Uh, I suppose the first question would be, this is quite a bold gambit by Jeffrey Donaldson to threaten to bring down the institutions if there aren't significant changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. I'm just wondering if we look closely at his his speech, is he giving himself any room there, do you think, for uh, a way out if there isn't wholesale changes to the protocol? Because it doesn't sound like the European Commission is going to go that far. I mean, what's your overall assessment? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's a huge electoral gamble. Uh, secondly, it's a huge political gamble uh, by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. It's an electoral gamble in the sense that he is assuming uh, that the votes to be had for the DUP to rescue the DUP's current fairly dire polling predicament are uh, lie in the area of hardline opposition to the protocol. So, in other words, the traditional unionist voice, which has been polling well, that's where the, the, the DUP's vote potentially lies. So he's tilting his party to the right. So it's an electoral gamble. Uh, the political gamble, yeah, you're quite right, Tony, is is obvious in the sense that is there any evidence that the EU is move substantially uh, on the protocol to the point where Geoffrey Donaldson's position from meaningful reform of the protocol, which was his language pre the DUP leadership election, to one where, in effect, he wants to get rid of the protocol well, there is slight wriggle room. It is that he's talked about getting rid of the, the border, um, 
between the east-west border rather than necessarily getting rid of the protocol full stop. But if you hollow out the protocol to such an extent that you get rid of any sort of meaningful east-west trading border, then what is left? What becomes of the protocol? So I don't think that really represents a huge amount of wriggle room. Yeah, I mean, I guess he said that he could not remain as uh, a minister or unionist ministers could not remain in Stormont if the protocol continued in its current form. I mean, I guess we can perhaps safely assume that when Maros Shevchevich brings forward proposals at the end of September, early October, and then there's a another period of negotiation with the United Kingdom, it, it, the protocol may not be exactly the same as as it is at the moment, or, or certainly the way it's applied and implemented may be more flexible, something that is approaching what the UK is looking for? I think that remains the aspiration. And part of the reason for Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's move this week is to put further pressure on Lord Frost not to uh, let up in the pressure that he's putting on Maris Sefcovic and others within the EU. It was very interesting listening to Lord Frost last weekend at the British-Irish Association conference uh, at Oxford, where he spoke with remarkable uh, candour, did Lord Frost. Now, normally those uh, events are subject to Chatham House rules, that, that they're not to be attributed uh, to anyone. But given that Lord Frost gave a copy of his speech to the press, we are at liberty to do so. And basically, Lord Frost was giving the impression, that, as far as he was concerned, and it's not an occasion really where grandstanding takes place, but he was giving the impression that the UK government is winning, that the EU is moving, that the EU is creating greater flexibilities on the protocol, uh, and that son or daughter of protocol will emerge. Now, you may think that that is, is, is delusional uh, in terms of the extent of movement we can expect from the EU, but that was certainly the message that came uh, from uh, the European Union. Paul Given, the Northern Ireland's First Minister, the DUP First Minister, w was in the room. Uh, he'd have liked what he heard from Lord Frost because the language that came from Lord Frost last weekend was not dissimilar to the language we heard from Geoffrey Donaldson yesterday in terms of, of aspiration, that there would be a fundamental reappraisal of the protocol, that the notion of a trading border east-west was, in essence, uh, unacceptable, uh, that issues of sovereignty had not been properly considered. And, and this all came from Lord Frost. You know, It could easily have come from the words of, of the DUP leader. So yeah. I, I think that Sir Geoffrey believes that, that Lord Frost is genuinely on his side and the UK government will continue to, to play hardball uh, with the EU. Uh, whether, like I say, that, that is uh, delusional uh, is open to question. Yeah, I mean, certainly the British government seemed to be taking the unionist line or certainly acting as advocates for the unionism that wants either to get rid of the protocol or fundamentally change it. Although David Frost did say that he didn't want to sweep away the protocol uh, completely. But certainly the European side are growingly, growing increasingly concerned at the, the language around sovereignty that David Frost was setting out in his speech in Oxford in quite a stark fashion. And this question about the European uh, Court of Justice, that it should not have any role in policing the protocol. The calculation on the EU side is that this is moving the goalposts. This is, you know, pushing it into a much more constitutional, high emotion territory rather than what the EU would prefer to focus on now, which is trying to find practical solutions to, to the problems of implementing the protocol. 
Um, and they're calculating that on the ground in Northern Ireland, something like the ECJ or the state aid provisions in the protocol are not really a burning issue for ordinary people, even if they're on the unionist side. I mean, would you think that they're right in that assumption or is this something that is, is perhaps being done in, you know, in parallel between unionism and the British government? Yeah, on the legal side, it's the EU that clearly holds all the aces here. Uh, and, you know, I think Lord Frost was making the best of what is a pretty thin hand uh, that he holds uh, in his expectation, his aspiration, that what the British government signed up to not that long ago can essentially be uh, renegotiated. Obviously, Lord Frost did raise the issue of Article 16 and, and to quote him from last week and said that the UK government was would be fully justified already in triggering Article 16 to suspend the workings uh, of the protocol. That, of course, does not replace the protocol or it is, is, is suspend its operation. Now, it is true, as you point out, Tony, that Lord Frost did say uh, that there would be a replacement, in his words, protocol emerging anyway. Um, he pointed out that the existing protocol makes provision for that, that there can be a subsequent replacement a- a- arrangement. He did also say, and this is where uh, this would not have gone down well with, with the DUP, he did also say, Lord Frost, that uh, the, that subsequent treaty would have laws, would contain laws that apply, EU laws that apply exclusively to Northern Ireland. So in other words, Frost does not think that the protocol is going to go away. What he wants is this replacement protocol. He did not also, he also did not specify last weekend which particular laws would continue to apply exclusively to Northern Ireland. We were left none the wiser as to, as to which aspects of the protocol were utterly unacceptable, other than the you know the volume of checks. Um, so, <laughs> the position that the UK government—it's not quite at a DUP level, which is to all intents and purposes get rid of anything meaningful in terms of a trading border. What the UK government wants is some sort of low friction trading border, but nonetheless, still a border would still exist under the terms of the protocol. And then you've got the EU position, which you know, whilst there has been movement, is obviously you know accept what you signed up to, um, you know, not that long ago, and which they, the British government either didn't read or um, uh, has tried to veer away from. <laughs> As I say, I think that Lord Frost, that the problem that the British government has is that its hand is thin. You know, it was a point that was made by Dennis Staunton in his piece in the Irish Times this week that, you know, legally, the British government does not hold the aces here, and it knows it. Mm. I mean, if, if Geoffrey Donaldson's threat to pull down the institutions is not an idle one. How do you think that would go down for the DUP in terms of the electoral outcome? I mean, you've talked about votes that are going to the traditional unionist voice, but votes have also been going to the Alliance Party. And one might argue that there is an overwhelming frustration and weariness in Northern Ireland about politicians that can't actually operate the institutions that they were voted to operate. I mean, pulling down the the, the uh, Stormont Assembly and Executive does seem to be a really dramatic threat. And it's one that could play very badly with the bulk of the electorate. If you look at the last election that was held in Northern Ireland, the 2019 December general election, both the DUP and Sinn Féin uh, suffered almost equally in terms of a, a 7% drop in, in, in both their support because they were blamed for the assembly hiatus from 2017, which of course had created even a pre-COVID pandemic uh, crisis within the NHS. So there are are huge risks 
foot forward, Geoffrey Donaldson, in threatening to collapse the Assembly because it does not go down well with the bulk of Northern Ireland electors. But I think what he's done is make an, a, an electoral calculation here. Things are looking really bad for the DUP if the recent lucid talk poll is to be even you know remotely accurate. Things have never been as bad. I mean, you know, the DUP was down at 13% on that. Well, they, since the Assembly was created by the Good Friday Agreement, they've never been as low as that. So you know, Donaldson has made the calculation, look, where have our votes gone, if this poll is to be believed? Our votes have gone to the TUV, which was polling at 14%. The only way we can get them back is to be to be hardline. Uh, and therefore, you know, we've got to take this, this electoral gamble. Doing nothing is simply not an option for the DUP. The chances are still that, are that very clearly that Sinn Féin will provide the first minister at the uh, at the next election. Michelle O'Neill likely to be the first minister uh, of Northern Ireland. You know, the DUP has got to get back up to about the 25% mark in the polls to get competitive with Sinn Féin. So this this is a big gamble from Donaldson. I think he's taken the view that he's not going to win back alliance voters. He's not going to win uh, voters from the Ulster Unis Party, which is revived under Doug Beattie and which offers, whilst opposed to the protocol, offers a more moderate stance. I mean, the, the all of the Unis parties met earlier this week to agree their stance on the protocol, but that dissolved within 24 hours when the UUP came out in favour of a cross-border body to manage the protocol. So, you know, unis unity is a mirage in, in that respect. I think the other point to make here is that the DUP is less wedded to Stormont than was once the case. It's not that long ago, the DUP, when it had more than 30 MLAs, Assembly members, could veto anything it didn't like within the Assembly. Westminster has come in and, and overridden those vetoes, and the DUP doesn't have the numerical strength either to use devices like petitions of concern to veto um, stuff it doesn't like. So issues like same-sex marriage and abortion have been legislated for by Westminster and Irish language legislation is promised by Westminster this autumn. So I think the DUP has thought, well, you know, we're not getting what we want. We can't block anything anymore at Stormont. And I think there is a big question now as to, you know, whether Geoffrey Donaldson would take the DUP back into Stormont anyway after the, the assembly election, I think, you know, he might think, well, I don't want to be deputy first minister, even however much you co-badge those, those two positions. Symbolically, it matters to be first minister. And I'm not sure the DUP would form an official opposition within Stormont. They might. So I think that, you know, is a worry for the, the stability of the institutions. I think it actually goes beyond the protocol. The protocol may be the catalyst for the DUP's growing disenchantment with Stormont, but I think it actually goes wider than that. That's a fairly stark uh, picture you're presenting. But on that note, Professor John Tong from the University of Liverpool, thanks so much for joining us on Brexit Republic. My pleasure, Tony. OK, that was Professor John Tong of the University of Liverpool. But Tony, I suppose, if people will forgive the pun, the EU is capable of playing the orange card as well. What is the citrus angle to this week's Brexit Republic? Well, breaking news on Brexit Republic, uh, we can introduce listeners to something called citrus black spot, which is a fungal disease affecting citrus plantations in Latin America and South Africa. Why is this relevant to Brexit Republic? Well, uh, we've talked about SPS, agri-food. The UK has been arguing really strongly, and that is going to there's going to be a crescendo of that argument that there is a vanishingly small risk of goods from GB entering Northern Ireland 
of, of those goods entering the uh, single market and causing any problems. So therefore, there shouldn't be checks and controls on those goods. That's but. a fundamental argument of the of the UK. But <laughs> there is a thing called citrus black spot, uh, which... Um, which gives them the pip. Which gives them the pip. Now, why is this uh, going to be a problem in this context? Well, there's been a ban on... Uh, certain citrus exports from Brazil and Uruguay and South Africa since 2016 and periodic bans on other countries. Um, And when the UK was part of the EU, that ban applied to the UK, even though they argued against it because they don't have any citrus industry that they have to take care of. Um, But on the 1st of January, when Brexit took uh, took effect, the UK lifted the ban on oranges and lemons coming from South Africa and from Brazil and Uruguay. So those products that potentially could have citrus black spot on them uh, will be circulating in United Kingdom. The Commission is saying if those goods enter Northern Ireland, a supermarket there, uh, and there's no checks and controls on those goods coming in, what happens if somebody buys a couple of bag of oranges in Sainsbury's and Derry, then decides to go on a city break to Seville, in uh, Spain, uh, eats a couple of oranges when they're there and tosses the peel into a a field near a plantation. Uh, The argument is um, that's an industry-destroying risk uh, that the EU is just not prepared to take. That's why they take this zero-tolerance approach. Now, the UK says, well, chance of that happening is remote, but even if it does, we don't need to have a blanket... uh, regime where Northern Ireland and the and GB is subject to the EU's full SPS legislation. We should uh, look at these problems on a case-by-case basis, raise the level of checks if there is a risk, lower them where there isn't a risk. Uh, that's essentially the UK argument. But the Commission is saying citrus black spot, that just proves you can't necessarily have a kind of relaxed approach and you have to have a strict regime. And all member states uh, agree to this. And that's why they say when Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol comes up and the SPS is, issue comes up when EU member states are discussing it, he said it's not often the usual suspects like Ireland who raise concerns. It's the Italian or the Spanish delegation who say we are not going to loosen our SPS rules when it comes to Northern Ireland just to suit uh, the UK. Right. Sean, speaking of the contents of supermarket shelves, you're currently looking at this area, particularly as supply chains, and you've been making a few phone calls and having a broader look at the issue over the course of the past week or so. Yeah, I mean, it was really noticeable. Um, I mean, we've talked before about uh, shortages of things, the empty shelves, certainly in Northern Ireland, then starting to ripple out into other parts of England. But it really hit home now, uh, by which I mean Right here in London, we're starting to see the effects of it, which means, obviously, it must be a serious problem Mm. uh, if it's affecting us here in London. Milkshakes Um, in McDonald's, chicken in Nando's. Yeah, and it's going to get worse, uh, according to some people on the industrial side I've been talking to. A lot of the industry not happy to go on the record at all about this because they say things are so competitive now that anything we say will be taken down and used in evidence against us by our commercial rivals. But let me tell you about X, Y, and Z. Uh, And the picture that they're painting is really not a nice one. Uh, It's not all to do with Brexit either. 
um, you know, even this, though this is Brexit Republic, we've got to come clean on this one. It is not all to do with Brexit. A lot of it is caused by the pandemic and the supply chain issues that are around the world. Mm. Um, there's problems in America. There's truck driver shortages in America. There's shipping problems in all of the major shipping routes around the world. There's a shortage of ships, uh, shipping capacity. The price of shipping has, has gone up and just the availability of goods. Uh, is being cut down. Right. Major companies like IKEA not able to supply you with stuff. I've heard from friends in continental Europe not able to get stuff. So it's not just here. However, Brexit has made it worse. Uh, and one of the areas is in that truck driver uh, shortage that we've talked about before, but also in uh, the fruit pickers, uh, people who work in packing lines, in food supply industries, butchers. Uh, and now there's a, a shortage of butchers. So what that uh, is causing is... Uh, slaughter plants are not taking through as many animals. So animals that were being reared for slaughter now are not being slaughtered. So you're getting a backup of pigs in particular on farms, uh, a surplus of pigs still hanging around farms when by now they should have been converted into rashers up on the shelves in your local Tesco. I'm sure the pigs um, would disagree with you. I'm sure the pigs would very much disagree with me uh, and are probably all in favour of Brexit and any other problems that right. uh, keep them from the uh, the big house. But uh, these problems are going to get worse and uh, might even have permanent effects. And that was certainly the view taken by Ian Wright of the Food and Drink Federation, who spoke this morning at a, an event uh, organised by the Institute for Government uh, here in London. And his comments have been causing quite a lot of ripples. I think you're going to read about them and hear about them in the UK media uh, over the next day or two. Uh, here's a flavour of what he was saying about how he envisages the situation uh, changing um, they said, is it going to get worse? And this is what he had to say. And I think it is going to get worse. And I don't I don't think it will then get better, but I think it will get different. And I think we have to change our expectations of the way the supply chain, certainly in food, works. Uh, and that applies just as much to restaurants, bars, cafes, hospitality, contract catering as it does to retail. Um, the other factor that is going to be very different is that the ownership of retail is changing pretty much before our eyes. We haven't talked about this and it's probably too late to do so. But, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that by Christmas, three of our four major retailers will be owned by private equity firms. Uh, and that will have a major impact on the way they operate and the pressure that they put on suppliers. So we will see a change in, in the way in which the supply chain operates because the way the, the way the suppliers and retailers interact will change. And that has some, I, I can't at this stage look into the crystal ball and tell you how much that will have an impact on what we're talking about. But I do think from now onwards, we should have, we should be, we should get used to the fact that occasionally empty shelves and prioritised delivery that may mean that your particular favourite product doesn't make it across the line every time is going to be the new normal and I think it's forever. I think Sean the pleas from certain trade representatives are to allow or loosen up the restrictions on free movement of people from the European Union in order to plug some of the truck driver gaps have fallen on deaf ears and to a certain extent some of these supermarkets are victims of their own driving down of the cost of supply chains that really truck drivers feel they're not adequately compensated for the antisocial hours of being on the road. They could be stacking shelves for a comparable rate. So, as, as you said at the outset, there's there's a kind of number of factors there, but there is also a potential knock-on effect to Ireland. 
Well, there, there is. I mean, uh, in, specifically in terms of truck drivers, uh, the, the cost of shipping or transporting stuff by road now has gone up quite a lot. just saw something today on the social media of a guy saying load that he used to, to carry for 400 and now gone over 750. So he says, watch out for inflation. Inflation is something that is being talked of an awful lot here in Britain. Uh, also, wages are going up in the truck driving uh, industry. Um, what EU workers can actually work in the UK market? Well, those who come from a country that happen to have a common travel area, i.e. common labour market with the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's going to put pressure on the Irish supply situation because truck drivers from there, if they can make more money in Britain, they can quite easily do that. Uh, but also, we know the supply chain linkages between Britain and Ireland, uh, the supply into supermarkets and uh, supply from Ireland to British supermarkets, that's also getting affected. Um, that's why this question of uh, when will the British impose the customs checks, they were supposed to come in on the 1st of October. There's an expectation uh, that the British are going to announce that they're not going to do that. Uh, we thought it was going to come this week. Uh, Ian Wright thought it was going to happen today. Um, as we're recording this, it's coming up to five o'clock on Friday. I haven't heard of it. I haven't seen it flashing through yet. That might be something that's announced. That will make it a little bit easier for Irish truckers who won't have to face formalities when they land at Hollyhead, for example. But again, Ian Wright, Food and Drink Federation, making the point, why should companies who've invested in preparing uh, for these customs changes, who've hired extra staff, be disadvantaged uh, because some other companies haven't done their, their homework, haven't hired the staff uh, and are going to be pandered to. Uh, so he was making a, an argument that we don't often hear, which was hurry up and do what you said you were going to do. Uh, some of us have actually planned for it and gotten ready for it. However, just back to some figures that came from that uh, Food and Drink Federation, uh, the biggest market that they have in terms of exports uh, from Britain is Ireland and uh, the exports there uh, have fallen by 22% compared to 2020 and 27% compared to the pre-COVID uh, data coming from uh, 2019. So there's been a really, really big fall uh, in exports from Britain uh, to Ireland in particular, but right across the EU. But there's also been a huge fall in the uh, value of imports from the EU. And again, Ireland uh, has been badly hit on this and uh, down by 27%. Um, the Netherlands also been very strongly hit. Um, France and uh, Spain also have big falls in the amount of uh, food supply going into the UK. And it's not just food, it's also components, uh, sauces, uh, condiments, etc. are things that get processed in the British food industry and uh, perhaps re-exported. So the impact on supply chain has been pretty profound. How much of it is due to COVID? How much of it due to Brexit? Hard to say. The two of them have impacted together. Uh, but I'd say Brexit has definitely made the COVID situation worse. And all of these customs changes that are going on under the cloud, under the cover uh, of uh, COVID, uh, are certainly going to have a long-term effect. Right. Okay. Well, somebody who's been under a bit of a cloud over the course of the last 48 hours or so is the former chief Brexit negotiator for the European Commission, Michel Barnier. Tony, I've seen two things out about Michel Barnier. There was an interesting piece in the UK in a changing Europe archive of Brexit principles. Basically, there are a lot of 
interviews, transcripts of interviews published on the UK and a Changing Europe website, which are fascinating interviews in themselves. But Jonathan King, the former UK commissioner, was talking about Michel Barnier. He had a couple of observations to make about him, saying that Barnier made no secret of the fact that he didn't enjoy interacting with Northern Ireland unionist politicians. He didn't think they had a constructive point of view. He didn't think they respected the process. He didn't think they respected him. And he had warmer interactions with people on the nationalist and Republican side of the fence in Northern Ireland and difficult relationships with unionism. And it also appears that Michel Barnier now has has a difficulty with some major European institutions in comments that have caused a bit of a stir. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think he raised some of the, his own, shall we say, disquiet uh, about the DUP in his book, which we talked about back in May uh, on the podcast. Um, but yeah, the... the Twitter sphere lit up uh, over the past few days when comments that Michel Barnier made about the European Court of Justice uh, and immigration and French sovereignty uh, made their way uh, onto the Twitter sphere. Um, and this was in relation to uh, a speech he was making or an interview he was giving as part of his, the, his campaign to become elected the next president of France. And uh, it seems that he made remarks about France should uh, push back against rulings by the European Court of Justice uh, on the migration issue. And and this was seized upon by Brexiteers as an example of uh, radiant hypocrisy by uh, the former chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier. Um, So he's come in for a lot of criticism for those remarks. no, his party speech, did seek itself. to kind of clarify the context of it. I think there was initially a tweet of his remarks and then a, a deletion and a further follow-up tweet uh, I, saying that he was being yeah. quite specific uh, in his remarks. Uh, at least that was the explanation being proffered after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I think the defence was that he was arguing that the European Court of Justice should not have a role when it comes to external migration into the EU. Uh, in other words the ECJ should not be in a position to order member states to bur- do the burden sharing. Now, we recall from the migration crisis in 2015, the European Commission was trying to take the ease the- that Italy and Greece were suffering from because they were the frontline migration states where all, all the migrants from the Middle East were and Africa were pouring into. And the Commission was trying to say, look, other countries have to share the burden and, and take people in. and. My understanding of Michel Barnier's remarks was that he was saying that the European Court of Justice shouldn't have a role in forcing member states to burden share when it came to migrants. But right. the thing is, because the speech wasn't published, um, that's that's what the reported context has been. Um, not not that France should um, you know pull out of the ECJ or or reject its its rulings. But again, you know he is a private citizen. He's running for office. He has got some fairly right-wing views on some issues and he's trying particularly to migration. Of, particularly migration he's trying to obviously create space within the uh, French presidential election campaign which obviously means he's up against people like Marine, Marine Le Pen and so on uh, but I don't think he is polling very highly at the moment um, but certainly his intervention drew the attention and ire of a lot of people from the UK who thought this was rank hypocrisy given his role as the Brexit negotiator. Right. Yesterday's man, uh, today's man, Mara Shevchevic, is talking to his today's man counterpart in the UK, David Frost, next week, Sean. So I suppose looking ahead to both of you from the, to the coming weeks, 
what's coming up on the radar is the heat going to be turned up again or is it going to be steady as she goes as you were with the current lukewarm tone being adopted with the possible exception of course of the urgency being expressed by Geoffrey Donaldson in Northern Ireland that it needs to be sorted before the DUP decide to walk away from the Assembly. It certainly does need to be sorted but uh, I'm all for a bit of lukewarm um, at the moment. Let's uh, see what the two sides have got to to say to each other. Uh, Having had a a pleasantly quiet August, uh, hopefully uh, it's meant that people have had a little bit of time to think and a little bit of time to explore uh, offline a few uh, of the ideas that are floating around uh, to see is there a, a landing ground for negotiation. Um, as you say, this frost Shevchevich meeting to take place uh, in the coming uh, week. Also at the start of this week, though, uh, Lord Frost will be uh, available for public viewing because he's uh, appearing before a House of Lords uh, European Affairs Committee to discuss with them a report that they published a couple of weeks ago about the operation of the protocol. So Uh, I'm sure he will uh, explore with them further, not only the contents of their own report, but again, uh, the type of uh, analysis that he'd set out in that speech to the British Irish Association, uh, whether he wants to um, raise the temperature or not um, at that uh, meeting. I suspect he won't. Um, Mm. I think he'll just want to meet Shevchevic and uh, if everything he said in that speech uh, is true, uh, then he will want to get on and uh, have a negotiation with them. Uh, one of the things, though, uh, when he finished that speech last weekend, he said, "You should about the protocol, you should be in no doubt about the centrality of this problem to our politics and to this government. The issue needs to be fixed, and we're determined to fix it. It is, as the PM made clear to allies at the, GM, the G7 summit, inseparable from our view of our own territorial integrity and what is best for Northern Ireland in the decades ahead. So... Yeah, I mean, there's enough big issues, uncompromising statements there uh, without having to to raise any temperatures any further. We'll see how that one goes. We'll also be watching out, of course, for any announcement on uh, the customs uh, regime that was supposed to come into effect on the 1st of October, if there's a a formal announcement on that. Tony? Yeah, I I think, um, yeah, there'll be a lot of attention on this meeting next week. I mean, I I suppose as as a general point, the the, the real battleground for these negotiations over the next few months will be the the issue of risk. Uh, Is the EU prepared to acknowledge the central argument of the UK that the risk of goods entering the single market, uh, either for SPS reasons or for customs, is is small or not as big as they had feared when the protocol was formulated. Uh, I mean, back in the day, the, the sort of formulation was that goods entering Northern Ireland are guilty of being at risk of crossing the border unless proven innocent. The UK essentially trying to invert that, saying the risk, uh, you know, they should be regarded as innocent until proven guilty. Um, and whether the EU is prepared to move the slider in that direction um but again, we've talked about uh, citrus black spot. Yes. And also the other big uh, consideration for the EU and for Ireland is can the UK be trusted if the if the UK, if the EU does really push the envelope and get as many flexibilities uh, as possible? A, will the UK say, OK, that's as good as we're going to get. Let's finally put this protocol to bed. Or B, will they say, yes, that's fine. We'll agree to that. And then five minutes later say, actually, we want more. We want it longer extra concessions uh, we're not happy uh, you're not implementing it properly 
Um, again, it gets down to this question of whether the UK wants a deal on the protocol or whether for domestic reasons or ideological reasons, do they want to push this out as hard as possible? Uh, and who knows what the consequences of that would be. All right. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungine, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And that's all from me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks, as always, for listening. 